Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, Friday the 13th was not an unlucky day on Wall Street. All three of the major stock market averages closing at all-time record highs. Optimism is ruling the day. In fact, there was a a consumer confidence number that came out today also revealing uh, confidence in the economy. University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Uh, And this is a measure of the belief that the U.S. stock market will be higher 12 months from now than it is today. And by that measure, consumers have more confidence in the U.S. stock market than they've ever had in the past. And that would include uh, where we were just before the 08 financial crisis and where the market was at the peak of the dot-com bubble. In fact, there are other measures of uh, investor sentiment that have never been this high. I mean, look at the VIX, for example, which is really a measure of risk, a measure of uh, the willingness or the, the need that investors have to hedge their portfolios. And if you look at that, the VIX is at all-time record lows. So investors have never been this complacent about the U.S. stock market ever. And pretty much all of those measures that measure uh, fear, confidence, are at the highest readings they've ever been. Even though the U.S. stock market is extremely expensive, and it's only been this expensive during previous bubbles, near the peaks of previous bubbles. But what's different about this bubble is, A, it's bigger, but people are even more confident now that it's not a bubble. You have less fear, less anxiety, Uh, investors are more convinced that they can't lose than at any prior time, despite the fact that we actually probably have more risk now than during any of the uh, previous bubbles. And of course, it's not just the investors that are confident. Consumer confidence is high. In fact, we had the the consumer confidence number came out much higher than expected today. The dollar rallied back on that. It had initially gone down because of the lower-than-expected CPI, which, of course, is seen paradoxically as good for the dollar if there was less inflation. But somehow, the way the markets expect the Fed to react, if there's not enough inflation, they reduce the probability of a rate hike. And so the dollar sold off because, you know, the, the PPI that came out yesterday was a little higher than expected. And so people were worried, oh, maybe there's more inflation. And then the CPI comes out, And it's lower than expected. Of course, none of these numbers are actually real because we all know consumer prices are rising a lot faster than what these indexes purport to show. And of course, then the Fed complains that we don't have enough inflation. In fact, the Fed actually claims they don't even understand 
why inflation is so low, because they expect it to be higher. Ironically, not because of all the money they printed. They think inflation should be higher based on how low the unemployment is. They're looking at the Phillips curve, and they don't understand why we don't have more inflation when the unemployment rate is so low. I mean, these idiots don't even understand that there's no real relationship between employment and inflation. And if there was, it's the opposite of what they think. When people are employed and they're productively employed and they're making more things, that tends to keep prices down. When people are unemployed and now governments have to subsidize them by printing a lot of money and making unemployment benefits or welfare benefits, that's generally going to lead to higher uh, consumer prices. So if anything, uh, they're going to be correlated together, not opposite. But what the Fed really should be wondering is, why did we create so much inflation? Why have we printed so much money, yet we're not seeing the evidence of all that inflation show up in the consumer price index? Now, one reason is the price index is flawed, because by design, it's not going to show uh, the effects of inflation on consumer prices fully, because the government and the Fed want to pretend that inflation is too low, so they can keep creating it. But also, the inflation is in the stock market. The inflation is in the real estate market. The inflation is in the bond market. And the inflation has been exported to our foreign creditors. But all of that is changing. I mean, even if you look at these you know, government numbers, as flawed as they are, you can see the trend has changed and these official measures of inflation are moving up. And they're going to move a lot higher. And look what's going on in commodity markets. Commodities are strengthening. Commodity stocks are strengthening. Commodity currencies are are strengthening. You can see it across the board. It's building even oil. You know, oil is now building a nice base above 50. It's, you know, almost got the 52 again today, but the oil market to me looks like it's getting ready to move up a lot. Other commodities, dollar getting ready to drop. I mean, it didn't really uh, do much today. The dollar was about unchanged, but gold was up about 10 bucks on the day. Gold closed uh, right at the high of the day, 1303, up just over. $10, but not a lot of optimism in the gold market. Looking at the gold stocks, I mean, gold stocks have basically done nothing. Gold's moved up about 40 bucks uh, in the last week or so. Gold stocks have basically gone flat. I mean, there's optimism everywhere except when it comes to gold. And that's the one place where people should be optimistic. And it's the one place they're not, judging by what's happening in the gold stocks. Of course, nobody can match the optimism for cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, which as I speak is trading around 5,600. We blew through the 5,000 high yesterday. Last night, I think we traded above 5,800. So almost at 6,000 uh, on the price of Bitcoin. So new record highs, you know, exploding, you know, upwards. Jamie Dimon, of course, not too long ago said it was a fraud. He was out today after he had made some comments the other day that he wasn't going to talk about Bitcoin anymore because somebody asked him about it, I guess he couldn't resist commenting today because he mentioned that anybody buying Bitcoin was stupid, which, you know, of course, I, had, I wish I had been stupid enough to buy some myself when I first uh, heard about it, uh, but I outsmarted myself, so I, I didn't do it. But just because I didn't buy it back then doesn't mean I'm going to buy it now. I'm still not buying Bitcoin uh, even though it has gotten higher. In fact, you know, I gave an interview to some reporter uh, about the bubble. I think it was maybe the street.com. I forget. But the guy asked me, well, do I think Bitcoin can go higher? And I said, well, sure. I mean, it, who knows where it's going to go? I said, you know, it's gone to 5,000. I said, that makes no sense. 
Uh, so if we can go to 5,000, you know, it can go higher. And he said, well, how high? I said, well, I don't know. It can go to 10,000. Sure, it can go to 20,000. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but I said, wherever it goes, it's going to crash. Doesn't matter how high it goes, it's going to end up in the same place. It's going to be a spectacular crash. And I read the headline, you know, Peter Schiff says Bitcoin can go to 20,000. That's basically what the guy took from it. Yeah, it could go to 20,000, but I didn't say that it would or that I recommend that people buy it based on the probability that it might. Now, if you are a gambler and you feel like gambling and you'd rather gamble on Bitcoin than on horse races or sports or whatever, you know, feel free. Again, what I would rather do personally is I would rather own a company that benefits from the interest in cryptocurrencies in the trading of cryptocurrencies so the company makes money regardless of what ultimately happens to the cryptocurrencies. So if the mania goes on for a while, they can make money uh, just like the casinos make money, even though the gamblers generally all lose. And I, I mentioned uh, goldmoney.com or not .com, just gold money, which is a Toronto stock that I'm a shareholder in that bought uh, Shift Gold. And that stock continues to rise, made another new 52-week high today, closed the day and the week on and the year uh, at a new high. Not quite moving up as rapidly as Bitcoin, although, I don't know, over the last couple of months, it actually may have moved up more than Bitcoin. Not, it's pretty close. Uh, but it was up uh, about 4% today. Again, I'm not recommending anybody buy the stock, but if you are a client of Europe Pacific Capital, you should talk to your Europe Pacific Capital broker about uh, this particular company and find out if it is something that you should have as part of your portfolio. Uh, understand the risk. It is a risk, right? This is not a dividend-paying uh, foreign stock that we're going to buy just to have a safe haven uh, to protect us from a dollar collapse. There's a lot more to this company, but of course, I think it's very uniquely positioned in the short run to benefit from the crypto craze as long as it lasts. But I also think it will benefit from the bursting of the crypto bubble whenever that happens. So I think, you know, it's the best way to play crypto and it's the best way to play the collapse of crypto. So whatever you believe, I think the company is going to come out as a winner. So, you know, but you need to uh, talk to one of my uh, one of my brokers at Europe Pacific Capital about it and just don't go run out and buy it. Don't go out and buy any stock that you that you hear about on a podcast or the radio. Don't buy anything that you don't understand. Uh, so make sure that you research whatever you buy. And again, you know, I'm just pointing this out. But, you know, it seems to me that a lot of the people who are probably going to be buying this stock over the next few months, are probably buying it because of the potential that it has with relationship to cryptocurrencies. Long term, that's not why I own the stock. I, I, I'm much more excited about what it's doing in the gold market. That's why I became a part of it. That's why I'm working with the company, because I really believe that what they're doing is the future. I think what's going on with Bitcoin uh, is, is a fad. I think maybe uh, it is a transitionary period. People are worried about fiat currencies, and they should be. They're worried about the dollar. They're worried about the euro. They're worried about the yen. And so they ended up in cryptocurrencies. But where they're ultimately going to end up is, is in gold. I mean, gold is really the answer. It's the solution to the problem, not, uh, not the cryptos. I, I think, I, in fact, I think I said to that same uh, reporter that the people who are worried about fiat currencies and who are buying cryptocurrencies have inadvertently jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. It's just that they don't understand they're in the fire yet because they're making all this money because there's so many other people jumping into the same fire. But at some point, 
you know, the fire is going to go out and people are going to rush for the exits and they're just not going to be there. But ultimately, where all this money is going to go is where it should have gone all along. And that's to the gold market. But, you know, I wanted to get back to this idea, too, about investor confidence, right? Not only are, you know, people confident in these cryptocurrencies and the confidence is being reinforced by the the paper profits that, that people have, right? The same thing is happening in the U.S. stock market, but to a huge degree, because I keep hearing from a lot of bulls out there, mainstream bulls, that, oh, you know, nobody's bullish on the market. Everybody's bearish. The market keeps going up anyway. We're climbing this wall of worry. And, you know, there's so, you know, we don't have to worry about the market until we have more bearishness. I mean, what are these guys talking about? There is no bearishness. Nobody is bearish on the markets. Everybody is bullish. Uh, short interest or, the you know, put calls uh, sentiment, all these measures that you want to look at. You know, if you look at what people are paying today for a dollar of earnings relative to how risky they think those earnings are, this is the all-time record high by a long shot. By a long shot. We are so much more expensive by that measure than we were at the peak of the dot-com bubble in 2000. Or, in 2007, 2008, right before the financial crisis. And we know that both of those times, the market went down by 50%. Now, sure, if you wrote it out, the Fed bailed you out because they inflated a bigger bubble. But as I've been saying, we don't know that they can make it a hat trick. This bubble may be the one they can't reflate. It may be uh, three strikes, you're out, right? Not the third time's a charm. So I people should be very worried. But when you've got... Uh, analysts making a bullish case based on the fact that nobody is bullish and that everybody is bearish, that's complete, utter nonsense. They are ignoring the fact that nobody is bearish and everybody is bullish. In fact, my clients are bullish. I mean, this is something I've mentioned this on this podcast before. I mentioned it again on the webinars that we did this week, but it's very frustrating for me as an as advisor and a broker to see my clients closing their accounts to invest in the U.S. stock market. I mean, this has never happened to me since maybe 1999, 2000. I mean, that's the last time that clients of mine told me that they were closing their accounts because they wanted to buy U.S. stocks instead of the foreign stocks or the gold stocks that I was buying them. Because I didn't start really buying these foreign stocks for my clients until around 96, 97, right? I started, I was worried about the U.S. market. Obviously, I was worried too early, as I always am. And I, you know, I was building positions for people in gold stocks and oil stocks. And I was investing in New Zealand and Singapore and Australia and places like that. And I was buying all kinds of old economy stocks. I was even buying oil stocks in Russia and Kazakhstan. And of course, you know, all these stocks were going down for years. All the stocks I was buying were going down. As all the dot-com stocks that I was telling people to sell and not buy, they were going up, 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 up. And of course, by 1999, 2000, you know, some of my clients had enough. They couldn't take it anymore, right? I'm done. I've lost money for two or three years. My friends are all getting rich. I'm missing out on all these profits. You know, I'm closing my account. I'm, I, I, you know, I got to get in, right? They capitulated. And, you know, they initially were maybe fearful of the U.S. market, but then they were so greedy they had to get in on it, right? So... The end of that bubble was the last time 
that I had clients closing their accounts specifically because they wanted to invest in U.S. stocks. And of course, from a timing perspective, it couldn't have been worse, right? Because they missed the whole ride up. They, they missed the rally and they bought in just in time for the collapse. Now, I don't even know what a lot of these people did after the market collapsed. Did they get out and lose money or did they hang on and, you know, and, and, and get bailed out by uh, the, you know, the next bubble? I don't know because they, you know, they closed their accounts. But I know what they missed out on. They missed out on the enormous profits that we made, uh, mainly from 2002 through the end of 2007. I mean, the profits that they missed out on were much bigger than the losses that they would have suffered, even if they got out on the lows, uh, because they just weren't a little bit more patient. And all they had to do was wait a few more years, and they would have been rewarded for all the stocks that we were buying in the late 1990s that were so cheap because everybody else was, was chasing bubbles. But that's the last time this happened. You know, I was losing accounts in 2015, kind of the end of 2015, early 2016. But none of those people who were closing their accounts then were telling me that they wanted to invest in the U.S. stock market. In fact, they were just telling me they wanted out of all markets, right? Because they had lost money in the U.S. stock market. They sent some money to me. Now they were losing money with me, right? Because the dollar had gone way up. Uh, and, and so they said, look, I just want out. I, I'm just going to cash. I don't want to own anything, right? Of course, that was a big mistake because the worst thing you could have done a year or two ago was go to cash because even if you went into the U.S. stock market, that was better than going to cash because the U.S. stock markets have gone up a lot. And of course, my stuff has gone up even more. So they would have been better off just hanging on to their accounts with me. But if they would have sold their accounts with me and at least bought U.S. stocks, they would have made money. They didn't do any of that. They went to cash. But now, the people who are closing their accounts now, they all want to go into the U.S. stock market. So if my clients are bullish on the stock market, Peter Schiff clients, people who you know, have, have missed the stock market rally for you know, the entirety of the Obama presidency, and a lot of these guys, you know, I didn't convince them not to be in the U.S. stock market. They convinced themselves. They were worried about the market. They didn't like what was going on, and they sought me out. As a, as a safe haven, as a way to invest abroad, because they didn't want to invest in U.S. stocks, right? They, they, they were scared of the U.S. stock market. And so I was able to get them to buy foreign stocks instead. So now those same people have decided, after all these years and watching the market go up, they've now decided, I want in on the U.S. stock market. I want to buy the U.S. stock market. And you got to believe that the typical Peter Schiff client is a lot smarter than the typical investor. I mean, first of all, just finding me as a stockbroker, you know, I mean, you got to do some research, right? I'm not knocking on people's doors. You know, I don't cold call anybody. So you pretty much have to find me. So you're doing your research, you know, and, and then you have to be, you know, you have to be thinking, you have to be smart enough to worry about things, to think that maybe the information I'm getting from the mainstream media or from my typical broker, maybe that's wrong. So people are thinking for themselves. So they're a little bit more savvy, yet you've got all of these Peter Schiff guys Buying into the U.S. stock market. I mean, if my investors, who are, again, smarter than the average guy, are dumb enough to buy into the U.S. stock market now, imagine what everybody else is doing. Imagine what all the other fools are doing when you've got these brokers out there saying that nobody is bullish. Everybody is bullish. Even Peter Schiff clients are bullish on the U.S. stock market. People that you, I couldn't force some of these clients to buy U.S. stocks. You know, we launched a U.S. fund. I did. You know, and I have my mutual fund family. So I launched a U.S. fund. 
just so, you know, if I had clients that wanted to buy the U.S. stock market, I figured, okay, I'll buy the stocks that'll go down the least. You know, I'll try to, I was avoiding the, the financials. I didn't have any retailers. I mean, I had a lot of multinationals. I had stocks that I thought, hey, if I had to buy U.S. stocks, these are the ones I'd want to buy. Well, I eventually had to close down the fund because nobody wanted to buy it. My clients had no interest in the U.S. stock market, even though I created a fund specifically so they could invest in the U.S. stock market. They didn't want to do it. Yet now, you know, I got all these clients and that's all I want to do is they want to buy the U.S. stock market, despite the fact that it's never been this expensive in history. It's never been this more more overvalued in history. And this is more anecdotal evidence of that being the case. So, I mean, it saddens me on the one hand that these clients are throwing away a winning hand. Right. But it reassures me that I'm doing the right thing. And that the vast majority of my clients who aren't closing their accounts are going to make a tremendous amount of money because this is indicative of a market top, right? When you have capitulation, people who have been so bearish, just throwing caution to the wind and just buying the U.S. stock market. And they're ignoring the fact that year to date, their accounts with me are actually beating the U.S. stock market. Now, they're not beating it by that much, but they're still beating it. But that doesn't even matter. They just need to get in on it. And maybe their other brokers are just able to just excite them with the returns over the last you know, five years, which are clearly better uh, in the U.S. than they have been internationally. But of course, the dollar was rising for most of those years. Now the dollar is falling. And if the dollar keeps falling, then the next five years are going to look the opposite of the previous five years. So people who are looking in the rearview mirror and who are buying U.S. stocks now because they've done so great over the last five years, wait till they see how horrible they do over the next five years. It's going to be the mirror image. Meanwhile, they're missing out on all the gains that are likely to accrue to people who are investing outside the U.S., people who are investing in foreign stocks, people are investing in commodity stocks, people are investing in gold stocks. This is exactly what happened from 2002-ish to 2008. Uh, this is going to happen again, except now it's a bigger bubble. Even more air is going to uh, come out of it. I want to switch gears, though, and talk a little bit about politics and what's going on. A lot of stuff happening uh, with the Trump administration, Obamacare, the tax cuts. You know, I mentioned on my last podcast, one of the problems for the tax cuts as proposed was that a lot of people in the middle class would end up getting a tax hike, right? So, and I thought that that was going to be a problem for getting the bill passed in its current form. And sure enough, you know, there's an interview, President Trump is being interviewed on Fox and this, the topic comes up that, you know, Mr. President, a lot of middle-class taxpayers are going to end up paying more in taxes as a result of your plan because of the elimination of the state and local taxes as a deduction. And Donald Trump acted like he was surprised and he was angry to find this out. Like he didn't even know how his own tax plan affected people. He was like, what do you mean? Like, I thought that this only affected the rich. Doesn't realize that a lot of middle-class people uh, benefit from those deductions. And when they lose those deductions, they're going to end up paying more in taxes. And so he was like, oh, we can't have that. So he's already backtracked away from that. So what that tells me is to the extent that we even get this tax bill passed, that the state and local tax deduction will be preserved for all but maybe the highest earners. So maybe it will be phased out or maybe they'll limit your deductions to a certain amount so that it only affects really maybe the top 1% of taxpayers so that all the other taxpayers who may have ended up paying more 
as a result of the loss of this deduction will end up with a tax cut too. So what does that mean? That just means the deficits that will be produced by this tax cut are going to be that much higher because the government is going to collect less in revenue. More and more people are going to get tax cuts and fewer people are going to get tax hikes. In fact, I think that's why we had this big number today. I mentioned earlier this big jump in consumer sentiment. One of the reasons I think consumers are so optimistic is because they all think they're getting a big tax cut, right? So they're getting excited about that. And, uh, and they're also optimistic on the economy. They think things are getting better, even though they're actually not, right? They think their incomes are going to go up, even though they haven't gone up yet. You still have that dichotomy. Just like when it comes to estimates of the economy, the economists think the economy is going to do a lot better than it actually does. And consumers think their income is likely to go up, even though in reality it hasn't happened yet. There's a lot of optimism. You know, hope springs eternal. And there's still a lot of hope surrounding the ability of Trump uh, to make America great again. Of course, all of that optimism is going to fade uh, as reality ultimately rears its very ugly head. You know, also, an inter- not even an interesting thing, but maybe it's a funny thing or maybe a worrying point, but in that same interview, Donald Trump was talking about the stock market rally and taking credit for it and talking about the deficits. And he said, look, you know, we had a huge increase in the debt under Obama, we had about a $10 trillion increase in the debt. But he said, look, you know, we've already had a $6 trillion increase in the value of the stock market since I've been elected. So in a way, we're taking care of the debt because now we have more wealth in the stock market. And somehow Trump was trying to minimize the, the rising national debt. The debt is rising under his presidency, just the way it rose under Obama's presidency. And if Trump were to be in office for eight years, which I doubt... I believe the national debt would actually grow by a larger number uh, during his uh, eight years than during Obama's. But I I don't think he will be there uh, for a second term. But he is going to add a lot of red ink during his first term. He'll certainly add more debt to the national debt during his first term than Obama did during his second term. Whether he'll beat him in his first term, it'll be a little harder because those deficits were huge. But we'll see. It's still not impossible, depending on what happens in the last couple of years, because we could have some $2 trillion plus deficits even by then. So he may even be able to, uh, to beat that number. But the fact that Trump was trying to claim that the increase in the value of the stock market somehow offset the national debt makes no sense whatsoever. First of all, the national debt is an obligation of the U.S. government. The stock market are assets held by U.S. citizens. So the assets of U.S. citizens uh, are not relevant to the debt of the U.S. government other than the fact that if those assets represent wealth that the government can tax in order to pay off the debt, but they can't tax the wealth until it's sold, right? You would have to sell your stocks in order to raise money to pay the taxes that the government needs to pay off the debt. And of course, if a lot of Americans were forced to sell their stocks to pay taxes, what would happen to the price of those stocks? They would collapse. See, there's a big difference between the value of a stock and what you owe on a bond. Because what you owe on a bond is fixed. You owe that money. If you owe $10 trillion, you owe $10 trillion. The value of the stock market all depends on what you can sell it for. It's just a price. And the stock market could collapse if everybody has to sell. And then all that you know, paper wealth vanishes. That's just like what I used to say about 
the real estate market, when people said, oh, real estate isn't uh, overpriced because, you know, or there's not too much mortgage debt out there because look how much these houses are worth. You have all this home equity. And I would say, yeah, but what happens if real estate prices go down? There goes all the home equity, but the mortgages are still there. See, the mortgages are real. The home equity is just uh, an illusion. It can vanish overnight, uh, but the debt is there unless it's defaulted on. And so the same thing applies to the value of the U.S. stock market. I mean, the stock market lose half its value, but the debt doesn't go away. I mean, unless you're going to default on it, the only real way to get rid of it is to create massive inflation and repudiate it uh, with a printing press, which is what I think I'm go- that we're going to do. But I don't like the fact that Donald Trump is trying to claim a claim credit for the increase in the stock market and then somehow claim that we don't have to worry about the national debt because we have a higher stock market. Look, We had a higher stock market under Obama. It doesn't make any sense that Trump was criticizing Obama because he ran these big deficits, but then claiming that it's okay because the stock market is going up while he's president. The stock market went up when Obama was president. And in fact, you know, I hear Donald Trump talking about the gains that we've had uh, in the stock market since he's been elected. And yes, the stock market has gone up a lot since he's been elected. And Trump claims that the gains are unprecedented, which is not true. I mean, they're, they're totally precedented. In fact, there are many presidents who came before Trump who in their first, what, 10, 11 months in office, the stock market gained more, more than what it's gained under Trump, right? I forget how many, maybe six or seven different presidents have had a term where in their first, you know, 10, 11 months, the stock market has done better, better than it's done during the same period of time uh, for Trump. So it's it's not only not unprecedented, there's plenty of precedent. It's happened. So, you know, why, you know, yes, you can say that the stock market's done very well since I've been president, but you can't say it's unprecedented because that's just not true. I mean, why does the president have to come out there and keep saying things where it's so easy to point out that he's not being honest? I mean, he's his own worst enemy sometimes when he says this stuff. But of course, the worst part about Trump bragging about the stock market going up is because he used the stock market bubble as a way to get elected. He said it was a bubble. It was a big, fat, ugly bubble. He said, forget about the stock market. Stock market doesn't matter. That's not the real economy. It's all a bubble. It's going to burst. Wait till it collapses. So that's what he said as a candidate. You can't go from calling it a bubble to now saying the same exact bubble is great. It's a bull market. It's fantastic. It's going up and it's all my fault. The stock market's going up because of me. Well, was then wasn't it going up because of Obama before you? Because it didn't start going up. I mean, maybe if the market had gone down for the eight years that Obama was president and now it's rallying, okay, maybe you can claim now it's me, right? Because it, we, the stock market did terrible under Obama and we got rid of them and now it's going up. But it's just continuing the trend that began long before he was elected, right? And it's not only a trend, it's a bubble. It's just more air in the same bubble. And so it really maddens me to hear the president talk this way. Although I, I'm going to have to give him some uh, some uh, props because he did do a few good things right when it comes to Obamacare. He did what he could as far as taking away these subsidies to uh, insurance companies that President Obama decided to do on his own. It didn't go through Congress. I think what the president did was illegal. Uh, and, And so what Trump did was use an executive order to remove or undo the illegal executive order uh, of President Obama. I don't know why he waited so long to do it. Maybe he was wanting to see what was going to happen with uh, repeal and replace. 
uh, but we got rid of those subsidies, which will make it harder for these insurance companies to provide the type of coverage that is mandated by Obamacare. So more and more of these um, uh, companies are going to drop out. Also, he signed some legislation. Uh, Rand Paul had been a big proponent of this, making it easier for people to group together uh, to buy insurance across state lines too, not just in your own state, but across state lines. And it makes it easier for these insurance companies to sell plans that don't cover all these things that Obamacare wants to mandate so people can actually buy the coverage they want and they can do it at a lower price. And there also is some ability to to discriminate in these particular plans uh, against people with pre-existing conditions. So this is a step in the right direction. The overwhelming problem, though, is that you still have this idea that even if you can buy less expensive insurance, why buy any insurance at all? Because you could just buy no insurance, pay a small penalty, which isn't even being enforced anymore, and just wait until you get sick and then just buy the insurance policy if you really need it. I mean, if you get to a point where you're so sick that you're going to have to pay medical bills that exceed what it would cost to buy insurance, then okay, then buy it then. That is still the problem. And as long as you have this idea that people can just go and force an insurance company to sell them insurance, even though they no longer actually need insurance, they just need their medical bills paid. Uh, it doesn't work. And so not as many people will avail themselves of these lower cost policies that, you know, the president's uh, new bill is going to allow the market to provide. But nonetheless, there will be people that will opt into them. And of course, this is going to be more of a problem for Obamacare, because as younger, healthier people opt into these lower cost uh, plans for obvious reasons, now the other insurance companies that are providing the expensive plans to the sick, well, they're not going to have as many younger, healthy people paying for coverage that they don't use. And so they're going to have to continue to raise the premiums on those people that are still in the system as the pool gets sicker and sicker and the death spiral just accelerates. Of course, the Democrats are already prepared to now blame the implosion, the pending implosion of Obamacare on the president and on the Republicans in Congress, which is potentially going to be the problem because Obamacare was going to collapse anyway, regardless of what the president did. But now that the president did something, right, and then when everything collapses, see, the Democrats can always say, you see, that's why. Everything was fine until Trump, uh, you know, screwed up Obamacare. He deliberately sabotaged it, and that's why it didn't work. It's not because it was flawed from the beginning. It's because Trump and the Republicans screwed it up. So that's going to be a political problem that the Republicans and Trump are going to have to deal with in, in 2018 and in 2020.